a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Ola Oliker, and I'm speaking to you from Louvain-la-Neuve, outside of Brussels. And I'm Alyssa Jobson, also in Louvain-la-Neuve, with a really heavy cold, which you may be able to tell as my voice is even deeper than usual. We're talking today about the elections in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Ovo ljudi, ovo nije protest! The citizens of Bosnia and Herzegovina went to the polls on October 2nd in what many have called the most important vote there since the end of the war in 1995. The elections were preceded by a bitter dispute over the electoral system between representatives of the Bosniak uh, population and uh, Croat constituencies in the country, and throw into that also uh, growing nationalist sentiments among the Bosnian Serb community. So these are the three main ethnic groups in Bosnia-Herzegovina. This rhetoric uh, got quite heated. Uh, Some parties were threatening a return to violence. In the event, the election itself saw moderate reformist representatives of the Bosniak and Croat communities winning the presidencies in their respective constituencies. But despite this, some of the folks involved are arguing that these results are not actually overcoming the deep divisions in the country's political system that the prior tension had revealed. Making things even more complicated, the high representative for Bosnia, Christian Schmidt, announced changes in the constitution and the electoral system on the night of the election, his bond powers, uh, which give him the right to do things like this. And that move has been, let's, let's just say, highly controversial, especially among the country's Bosniak community. So to talk about all of this and help unpack what is a really complicated situation, we're joined by Marco Prelet, Crisis Group's Senior Consulting Analyst for the Balkans. Marco recently co-authored a Crisis Group report on the electoral dispute in Bosnia entitled Bosnia and Herzegovina's Hot Summer, which you'll find on our website. He has three decades of experience working in the region, including as an investigator helping to prosecute atrocities in the former Yugoslavia with the International Tribunal in The Hague. Keen listeners may remember our discussion last July with Marco on the political landscape in the Western Balkans and the prospects of countries in the region to obtain EU membership. Welcome back to War and Peace, Marco. Hi. Hi, Alyssa. Hi, Olya. It's good to be back. It's really good to have you back. Okay, so let's talk through the electoral system in Bosnia and Herzegovina. And how does this work? It's It tries to split power between the three main ethnic groups, Bosniaks, uh, the ethnic Serbs, and ethnic Croats. So why is it doing that? And how does it work? Uh, unfortunately, it's extremely complicated. And all of these discussions about Bosnia and Herzegovina uh, have to start with, you know, just explaining how how things work and all of the, the different levels and, and, and layers. So what we just had in Bosnia was the direct portion of the election for state level offices 
and also offices at two other levels. So you, in Bosnia, you've got two entities, countries divided into two entities, Republika Srpska, slightly smaller, mostly Serb, and the confusingly named Federation of Bosnia-Herzegovina, which is mostly Bosniak and, uh, and Croat in population. Um, and then within that federation, also for 10 cantons. So that's what it's the legislative and executive bodies for those those things that, that have just been elected. What is yet to come are a series of indirect elections where legislators um, that have just been that are now in the process of being being named elect further bodies uh, that, that represent the ethnic groups of Bosnia-Herzegovina and have an important role in legislation and in naming the executive, the, the prime minister. So the the other thing to know is, you know, we're here, what is it, the, the 14th now of October, um, running into uh, to two weeks after the election, and we do not yet have final results. And this is not unusual. It takes Bosnia a, a super long time to tabulate its its votes. They do it the old-fashioned way uh, with paper ballots that are counted by hand. And right now, there's a recount, um, a very controversial recount going on for the presidential race in Republika Srpska. Um, in the first, in the first count, the longtime unchallenged, uh, leader of, of Bosnian Serb politics, Milorad Dodik, won election to his second, his second term as the RS president. Uh, but there were apparently a lot of irregularities. And they're doing a full recount. Some people think that it could change the result, and there's already a huge controversy. There's there's quite a lot to unpack there. Is there any danger around this recount? You know, what's the conflict risk because of the recount? Uh, great question. Um, there is. I guess. I mean, it depends on what happened and how it goes. So you've got basically two scenarios. Um, if Dodik and his party did not steal the election, and if they won fair and square, then, you know, they can complain about the recounts because they, they can be paranoid that there's some kind of, you know, Western abetted attempt to cook the election and get them out, but that's not going to happen, and the recount is just going to confirm that they won, and everything will be fine. Okay, so in that scenario, we're okay. Uh, and the opposition, I think, is going gonna, is gonna to accept that, um, if that, if that's the way it goes. If, on the other hand, Dodik did steal the election and the recount shows that, then he's got a pretty strong motive to contest this. And he's there's already, you know, language coming out of the party saying, this is illegitimate, we won, they're trying to take it away from us. Some of this rhetoric will be familiar to um, observers of politics in the United States. Um, let's not maybe make too much of that. But um, <laughs> So, you know, we could have our own January 6th moment uh, in, in Republika Srpska because the stakes are very high. He has not been out of power for a very long time. And there, you know, allegations of corruption have been you know, swirling uh, around him and, and his family, you know, being issued by the, the, the opposition mostly. So uh, there, there's a lot at stake for him, for him personally, uh, for, for the country as a whole. If, if this does, in fact, turn out to have been a, a cooked election. But we don't know that right now. We just don't know. And to go back to the electoral system itself and the divisions between the different entities in Bosnia has often been blamed for a lack of progress in the country. Um, some parties have also attempted 
to appeal to nationalist sentiments in the run-up to the election. What do you think are the main roadblocks in overcoming these types of divisions? Well, it's the, the basic roadblock is that they, there's not any kind of consensus about who runs the country, you know, how's the country run. Uh, sort of really basic questions like, you know, how do the elections work? How do, how do you translate vote totals into, into, you know, seats in parliament? Things like that are not agreed on. And they're not agreed upon because they determine, you know, who has their hands on the, the steering wheel of, of, of power. So every time around, there's a big fight. And because it's ethnicized, because the parties are ethnicized, uh, to a, to a considerable extent, you know, these, these political disputes become, become ethnic disputes, uh, as well. And ordinary people can feel like, you know, oh my God, I'm, I don't really care about politics, but if a party that is really behind some other ethnic group comes into power, they, I might face discrimination, uh, either as a person or, you know, the, the company that I work for might, uh, end up losing its contracts. I might be out of a job. So, uh, it ends up being, being pretty, pretty stressful. That said, uh, there's some, there are some interesting results that, that seem to have come out so far in the other side, in the Federation. The one big upset there was that the longtime Bosniak leader, Bakir Izabegovic, who was the son of the, the wartime uh, leader of Bosnia-Herzegovina, Alia Izabegovic, lost his race uh, very convincingly for the, the Bosniak seat on the state presidency. So that's kind of an end of an era. He did much worse than his party did. Uh, so his party, the, the SDA, which is a kind of a centrist, uh, Bosniak nationalist party with some, I guess you could say some resonances with the, the AKP uh, in Turkey. I wouldn't push that particularly far. It's sort of a moderate Islamist, uh, wing within that, within that party. They did very, very well. And the, the big issue now is going to be, are they going to be included in the governing coalition or not? A lot of the other parties that scoop up Bosniak votes, are looking to to shut them out because the SDA has been in power for basically forever, and uh, once again, you know, everyone in Bosnia has allegations of corruption. Um, the longer you're in, the more there are, and there is, I think, um, there's some energy behind the idea of turning over a new leaf. Unfortunately, that is also being ethnicized. Shutting the SDA out involves making a coalition with the main Croat party, the which is a nationalist party, the HDZ. And that is then opening up all kinds of nasty rhetoric about, you know, you're selling the country out for your own, you know, narrow party interests. Um, instead of making a, you know, sort of a pan-Bosniak uh, alliance of all of these parties together to shut the HDZ out. So don't feel bad if it's confusing. People in Bosnia are confused too. But that's the basic contour. You know, it's political dispute that's being ethnicized. Yeah, I mean, for me, in coming from that background um, in Africa, and this is is fairly um, resonant. You know, it, it's something that we see in in the continent in many places. The ethnic dimensions are are very familiar. Yeah, you know, Bosnians like to think that their politics are unique, but but a lot of these are very very familiar patterns and dynamics that you get around the world. When we talk about ethnicization. We're talking about narratives that try to appeal to specific ethnic groups. Are we talking about narratives that demonize other ethnic groups? Are there other components of these narratives? You know, are there gendered components? I'm just trying to get a sense of how how scary this is. Yeah. um, Well, I think the basic dynamic is 
fundamentally not ethnic. It's political. It's basically, I want power. So how am I going to get power away from you? I'm going to accuse you of doing something bad for my ethnic group. And that you, I can do that whether we're from the same ethnic group and I can just say you're selling out. Or I can say, you know, if you're from a different ethnic group, you're, you know, you hate us and you want to do all kinds of horrible things to us. But fundamentally, I just want the power. But um, these things get out into into public, right? So they become part of the the air the the air that we breathe. They're on Twitter, they're in the media, and they take on a life of their own. It's been getting a lot worse, uh, honestly. Uh, in in that sense, the rhetoric, the public narrative has been just been getting a lot more hateful between between the Croats and the Bosniaks. I mean, there was always tension with the Serbs. So you had you know Dodik uh, saying year in past years saying things like, well. You can't expect me to accept uh, judgments from the court in Sarajevo, those are, because it's got Muslims on it, you know. So of course, they're you can't trust their jurisprudence. So really nasty slurs like like that. But now you're getting because the there's a real bitter struggle over power within the federation. Uh, you're getting a lot of hate, uh, hateful rhetoric between Bosniaks and Croats, and this is something of a novelty. Uh, there was always an attempt within the Bosnian community to rise above the ethnic and to say, you know, what we're about really is we're about Bosnia as a country and about equality within all the the peoples within it. And you're getting more and more people who are just resorting to, you know, damn it, we just, these, these Croats, we just can't, you know, we can't trust them. Um, They want to break up our country. Uh, You know, it really is just all down to us. This is our country. Uh, Really some, some fairly worrying, uh, rhetorical developments. I'm hearing this from longtime diplomats uh, in the region. I'm just, and I'm also observing it myself. It's worrying. It's not worrying in the sense that there's going to be a civil conflict tomorrow. And I, I feel a bit bad, I should say, uh, doing these these podcasts uh, with you, Olya, because I'm taking you away. I mean, there's like missiles raining down on Ukraine. But having said that, yeah, it is it is heading in the wrong direction. I do want to come back to Ukraine, but before I come back to Ukraine, I want to ask you about these changes announced by the high representative, but also I want you to explain who the high representative is, why this person is the high representative, whom does he represent? Yeah, this is a, uh, it's an interesting story. Um, so. In the Dayton Peace Agreement that ended the war um, and set the constitution for Bosnia and Herzegovina in 1995, there was uh, there were a lot of annexes, and one of the annexes provided for a civilian high representative, and it was just said like that. He's not a he doesn't he, he's not a representative of anything. It's just the name of the title, um, and what he was supposed to basically do uh, in that original document was oversee and coordinate all the civilian aspects of the peace agreement in the same way that the military commander, the overall NATO military commander oversaw the, the military aspects and things did not go to plan. So for the first couple of years, Bosnia and Herzegovina understandably was just a total disaster. And there was a, a growing sense that, look, this peace agreement is a failure uh, and the country is not going to survive unless we do something. So an ad hoc body, called the Peace Implementation Council, which was just a bunch of countries that were invested to one extent or another in supporting the peace, 
gathered and said that the high representative has power. Okay, he has executive power, among other things, to appoint and, and dismiss officials and to legislate. So they just said this, okay, <laughs> and uh, it's not in the Dayton Agreement anywhere. And it's since then been, it's acquired a, a measure of international law of legitimacy because it's been welcomed and endorsed by the Security Council, the United Nations Security Council, acting under Chapter 7. So it has that. So the high representative, rep- he represents no one. He's an international official. It's always a he. It's always been a he, never been a woman. And he's used those powers in extraordinary ways. Before you move on to some of the things that he's done in in his various guises, what do the Bosnians think about this? Having a someone a, a foreign a non elected foreigner with quite considerable power over the the government and how it's run? How is it how is his role seen uh, within the, the various Bosnian communities? Well, uh, if you'd asked me that question uh, maybe six months ago, I would have given you a totally different answer, which would have been the Serbs hate it, the Croats kind of hate it, and most Bosniaks are very supportive. And now it'd be, it's basically the other way around. <laughs> so the Cro- because the high representative just intervened on election night, so like a few minutes after the polls closed, he issued uh, two decisions changing the way that the indirect elections uh, for the House of Peoples will will be conducted. Those interventions were broadly seen as being objectively favoring the interests of Bosnian Croats. If you want more detail on this, actually, our, our report, which was before he acted, it just it goes through all this, uh, the, the briefing that you mentioned in the beginning, um, all that detail is in there in excruciating degree of granularity. So he just acted in favor of the, the Bosnian Croats, and the discourse has completely switched. So now, among patriotic Bosnian voices, so pre- predominantly Bosniak, but not, not exclusively Bosnian, it's all about, you know, it's a monstrosity having this uh, international official having power over us, we need to get rid of him. Whereas before, it was the Serbs who were saying that, because he was usually acting against Serbs against Republika Srpska, not against Serbs in an ethnic sense, but against, you know, the their political uh, representatives. Croats were also upset because a previous high representative, Wolfgang Petrich, had acted to reduce their 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 powers in back in 2002, and they've been complaining for the last 20 years about that. So, it really your view on the high rep uh depends very heavily, you know, not on whether you think having an international official is good or, or not, but on what he does, if that makes sense. It's not really a principled thing. It's just tactical. Um, at least that's my impression. People have, they literally switched overnight what they, what they were saying about, about, about him. So what do you think? What's your assessment of his decision and its timing and its implications? Well, I think this is the best of a bad situation. Um, I personally have long been um, in principle, against the idea. I mean, it has no democratic legitimacy. I mean, I, I didn't get to say it before. Uh, he he changed the entity constitution. Okay, so it goes up to that level, and it's not the first time that this has happened. So I've I've long been against it, and I'm still against it. And I think that office has outlived its usefulness and should close. However, it is not closed. I know we try to avoid this term, the international community, but the international representatives who make decisions about policy in Bosnia-Herzegovina have decided otherwise. They've decided to support the high representative and the, the use of his powers. 
there was a period when the previous high rep did not use his powers at all. And then in the last uh, six months, they've been revived. Uh, and they've, they've been used uh, over and over and over again. So in that context, in which we have the international community acting through this man, you have to you have to say, you know, the, the question is not whether he should use his powers, but what, what should he use them for? And I think he used them in the right direction because we were facing a situation in which it was possible that the Croats would dispute the results of the election because they disputed the election law that was in place before and that they would then make common cause with the Serbs who were already trying to basically secede in, in slow motion from, from the country. And you would have a very dangerous situation. So I think in that, uh, I guess you could call it emergency situation, and with an empowered high representative, it's better that he acted than that, than that he did not act. But that said, he is still part of the problem and not part of the solution, and that office should be wound down. So what about Ukraine? Does Ukraine change things, or is this so much its own set of problems that uh, Ukraine just doesn't really have that much impact? Yeah, I think Ukraine changes everything, really, uh, in the world. Uh, and it, you could already see it's it's changed uh, changed things in Bosnia in, in at least two ways. I mean, Bosnia-Herzegovina was just recommended for EU candidate status. And it's it's kind of funny, if you look at the, the European Commission's uh, progress report, which came out at the same time, it is basically a report card where every grade is, is failing. Uh, you just look at it, somebody put on Twitter, he highlighted every place where it said no progress, and the whole page is basically yellow. It's like no progress on this, no progress on that. You've done nothing. And therefore, we are upgrading you to candidate status. And the reason they're doing that is because the meaning of candidate status changed when Ukraine got it. Um, so they gave it to Ukraine for geopolitical reasons. And uh, Ukraine, of course, had not even been part of the whole accession process at all. They had not, they had obviously done nothing because they were, they hadn't been asked to do anything. So now, um, uh, yeah, now Bosnia has been, uh, has been upgraded too. Whether that means anything, uh, I guess, will remain to be worked out. The other way it's changed things is it, it, I think, not the war in Ukraine itself, but the Western response to the war, the muscularity of the, the sanctions that were imposed on Russia and the speed with which they were imposed, the extent to which Western countries pumped military aid into, into Ukraine and took risks confronting Russia, I think freaked out uh, the Bosnian Serbs who were moving towards the session because they had assumed that the West was not going to be decisive. Um, and they assumed also, you know, if Russia came in to, to endorse their, their breakaway, that that would, that would be pretty helpful. And I think they're now thinking it's really discretion is the better part of valor until, until all the dust settles. So there's that, uh, in the future, uh, it is very easy to just draw a line between various ways the war in Ukraine develops. Uh, and the way it eventually ends and repercussions in the Western Balkans, you know, it will definitely continue to have, have an effect, but it's difficult to prognosticate that effect because we don't know what's going to happen. You may know, Olya, but uh, the rest <laughs> of us, the rest of us don't know. <laughs> I do not know. Sorry. If I knew I would, I would share. You don't, you don't have the crystal ball. Uh, it's broken. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted to, bring us back and maybe it's just a coincidence but you said that the high representative began 
exercising his powers again six months ago, which is no, not that long after the Ukraine war started. Is there a link there? Yes, it is not a coincidence. Um, so actually, the previous one uh, broke his his ten year um, fast, I guess, of uh, of using the powers on the, the literal day that he left office, with a largely symbolic but although still very provocative uh, decision that made genocide denial and various forms of hate speech uh, illegal. That uh, aroused a, a lot of Serb opposition and provided an impetus for the Serbs to to speed up their their preparations for breaking away. Uh, and then there was then there was a war in Ukraine, and then there was this kind of sense that uh, it changed minds in the international community. When Christian Schmidt took office late last year, the main actors, the message they gave him was, you just sit there, basically. You don't, you don't do anything. Do not use your powers. Uh, we got this. We've got a political process in, in play. You're not part of it. Russia invaded Ukraine. That message changed overnight. The, the political support for intervening initially to, uh, to rule out certain steps the Serbs were taking, having to do with uh, laying claim on state property in, on their territory and uh, setting up, breaking away from certain state institutions. Uh, so he acted against that. Um, he also acted uh, to uh, facilitate the, the elections. There was a problem. The elections were not funded, the state level elections. There was no budget for them because the Bosnian Croats were uh, holding up funding uh, as a way of trying to extort um, concessions on the, the election law. So he acted to uh, to fund them. Uh, I think there were six or seven different interventions in the space of as many months. And yeah, exactly. It's right. It, it's because of the war. Because the sense that, you know, the last thing we need right now is another crisis in Europe. Um. So I'm not going to ask you to get out your crystal ball. I suspect it's in the same state that Ollie's is um, broken, smashed on the floor, maybe in a, in a fit of peak. Um, but what do you find most worrying? And do you think that the divisions in the country are surmountable? Or might we be heading for renewed outbreak of violence? Well, I think this is not so much violence uh, as much as uh, some species of state failure, um, which would then potentially lead to violence. But we, we would have that first. And that is a still a realistic possibility. I think I'm I'm maybe slightly guardedly optimistic. Um, what the high representative did by changing the law, basically in effect, it says it is now very very hard to shut uh, any majority Bosnian Croat party out of government entirely. So. You have to include them in a coalition, but it also makes it harder for um, that party, having been included in the coalition. It makes it harder for them to veto everything and and um, do what they used to do, which was basically bring government to a halt in order to get concessions. So, the hope is, or my hope is, that gives both sides. A breather, a chance to say, okay, you know, we've got to make a government and we're both going to be in it and we're, it's going to be hard for either one of us to have everything that we want. So let's just try to muddle through and see how we get on. And then, and this I think is the, is the key point. Let's see if we can make some decisions about how we run this country going forward. Okay. Um, 
there was a process that the, the United States and the European Union um, mediated last year, over the course of the last year, to try and get Bosnians to agree on a very limited set of constitutional amendments. Um, this had to do with, half of it had to do with what the high representative just imposed, and the other half had to do with the way you elect the state president, the state presidency. Uh, Bosnia uh, keeps losing cases at the European Court of Human Rights because you're only allowed to run for office if you are uh, ethnically one of the three majority groups. So if you're, if you're, if you're Jewish, for example, and you say, that's my ethnic identity, then you can't run. Uh, or if you're a Roma, uh, or if you're, you know, from the, the right group or from the wrong place, you also can't run. So uh, they've got to, at some point, change the rules. Uh, and they can't agree on how to do that. So my hope is, um, since they got relatively close in those in those talks, only to fail at the last minute, maybe now, uh, with the elections behind them instead of ahead of them, and no campaigning to do in the, in the immediate future, maybe they can finally bite the bullet and, and, and figure out a way to take one step forward. And if they take one step forward, they can take another. Um, and in particular, if a lot of the predominantly Bosniak parties pursue this line that, you know, basically this is our country and we're the ones who run it. And there are people who, who are making that argument that they will alienate in a, in a lasting way the, the Serbs and the, and the Croats and, and they are basically half the country and it's very hard to run. It's hard to run the country with that. You need to get some buy-in. So I think there's a good chance they can do it, but there's a real, there's a real risk that they won't. Marco, I think that really, really cautiously optimistic note is uh, what we're going to have to end on. Um, thank you so much for coming on again. I found this really interesting and informative and looking forward to having you back again in the future. Sure. It's always great being on. And um, yeah, look forward to it. Look forward to it. Thanks. To read more of Marco's and Crisis Group's work on Bosnia-Herzegovina, check our website, www.crisisgroup.org. You can also follow Marco on Twitter. He's at mprelek. You can also find us on Twitter. I'm at Olya Oliker, and Alyssa is at Alyssa Jepson. If you want to learn more about some of the topics covered in this episode, do read our recent report, uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina's Hot Summer. It's uh, right there on crisisgroup.org. We'd also like to thank our producer, Alex Figurski, and our coordinator, Heiko Schwau. The biggest thanks, as always, go to you, our listeners. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org and do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And we look forward to chatting with you again in two weeks. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye, and we hope you'll join us next time.